Yes, Micah 2, uh, chapter 5, 2 through 5, an unexpected Savior. Um, unexpected things, right? unexpected heroes. I just uh, got done last night, uh, some of us watched Aquaman, and uh, one of the lines in there was, uh, he's not a king, but he's a hero. And uh, it made me think uh, and reflect, how can I use that as a sermon <laughs> illustration? Because he looks both like a king and a hero. And I was joking uh, with Sec Brothers, actually, with the Sec Brothers, and uh, I said, I'm not letting my wife watch this movie because what's-his-face is so buff, right? <laughs> <laughs> all she knows is this. And, like, that's all I want her to know. Um, but, like, how is... <laughs> Sorry, let's rewind. <laughs> Unexpected <laughs> husband. Um, but in my mind, I was like, how... Like, they were trying to play this guy off as, like, oh, I'm not a leader, I'm not a king, I'm not a... You know, I'm not this or that. But he's, like, over six foot, just ripped, and he... Uh, he's a hero, basically, and uh, and I think our culture, our society, our world has pictures, has an image or a vision of what a king looks like, or what a hero looks like, or what security looks like, or what strength looks like, or what confidence looks like, um, and and people are people. We can even look in the Old Testament, right? The people wanted a king. And, and for a long time, um, there was just a prophet and God. And God was the ruler of the nation of Israel. But the king looked, or the people looked at all the other nations around them. And they were like, all the other nations, they have this great king. They have a ruler with armies, and he's got armor, and he's on a horse. We want a ruler, too, that's majestic and just carries this air of royalty that can represent our nation with strength and power, that can be our hero, our king. And so they begged the prophet Samuel, we want a king, and it upset God. But finally God said, okay, I'll bring you an anointed king. And it says that Saul was a head taller than every other man. And the people were really excited about Saul because he physically and externally represented everything that people would expect when they expected a ruler, a leader, and a king. But we know the story, uh, or many of you may know the story of the rise of King David, right? Who's just the shepherd boy. And even when Samuel came to anoint David king before he would become king, he goes through Jesse's children, Jesse's sons, one by one, and he sees the oldest son, and he's like, wow, he's pretty impressive. Surely this is who I'm to anoint. And God's like, no, no. Down the line, brother to brother to brother. Do you have any other sons? Any other sons? And Jesse's like, well, I have David, but you don't. He's not the next king. You don't mean him, right? He's just this little ruddy kid. He's shepherding the flocks right now. But God was like, this is the one. Because what? God doesn't look at 
the outside of a person, but looks at the heart of a person. So when we continue to reflect on what it means to follow Jesus, I didn't even turn this on. What it means to follow Jesus, there we go. Uh, uh, lower, lower, way lower. And what are the values of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? Oftentimes, we will learn and we will soon discover that these values are backwards, right? They're countercultural. They're reverse of what we expect. What is strong, uh, what is considered strong and powerful, on one hand, the kingdom of heaven flips the script. Right? God flips the script and says, no, actually, this is what I value. We've talked a little bit about that. Erica talked about meekness, right? Meekness is strength and not lording your strength over other people, right? You have the strength to destroy. You have the strength to do powerful things, but you don't use it. You're not braggadocious about it. You don't brag about it. You don't use it you know, for your own means, but you, you hold back and you reserve. If we were to go to the Sermon on the Mount, right, the Beatitudes, it's all about the reverse kingdom, the upside-down kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Right? Blessed are they that mourn. Right? In saying that these groups of people, these categories of people are by God blessed, right? it's uplifting kind of this character, this upside-downness of the kingdom. Unexpected heroes. The unexpected savior. Just a little background for uh, Micah. Micah prophesied, he was a contemporary of Isaiah. So we're talking 8th century BC. Um, so just for a historical like uh, placement, in 722 BC, um, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah was overcome. Uh, by the Assyrians. So they were destroyed by the Assyrians. So Micah and Isaiah are prophesying in this time period, 8th century BC. We're going backwards, right? It's before Christ. Um, and he mostly prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah. At this time, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Israel was in the north, Judah was a kingdom in the south. Um, and like I said, they fell to the Assyrians in 722. And the book of Micah is made up of three cycles. If you were to outline Micah out, you would see three main sections, three repetitive rinse and repeat cycles um, that are defined by divine destruction and then deliverance. Right? So the people are moving towards idolatry. Their leaders are, being, are acting unjustly. Um, they are using empty rituals um, to worship God, and they're oppressing the poor, etc., etc. And so God uses his prophets to kind of speak truth into that and say, a time you are going to be, I'm going to bring an enemy to oppress you, or you are going to be destroyed, or you are going to lose 
um, you're going to fall. Um, and then that is followed by a cycle of redemption or deliverance. But then I will bring you back to myself. I will lead you out. I will restore your fortunes. Right? I will give you back. Uh, I'll uh, find favor in you again. So three times. In our particular passage, Micah 5, we're in the second cycle. Right? And if you uh, were to read uh, chapter 3, you would see some of God's or the prophet Micah's indictment against Judah. Judah's leaders in particular. Um, Judah's leaders, we'll see uh, Micah 2, uh, Micah 3. Uh, I am planning disaster against his people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with his mournful song. I'm actually Micah 3. But anyways, he, it is Micah 3. This is, I was reading Micah 2. Uh, but in Micah 3, there's an indictment against the civic leaders. And basically the image there is, you are ripping the skin off of the people and consuming the people, your people. Right? These are not benevolent leaders. And in kind of our church culture, we talk about servant leadership, right? Leaders are those who serve, who are like shepherds. Um, and we don't, shepherds and leaders don't eat the sheep. We actually protect the sheep. But in, in this case, the rulers, the government leaders are actually consuming their people. Consuming the people. And, you know, if you compare it today, oftentimes you would think, wow. Right? This is a prophecy against maybe some of our governmental structures or some of our leaders. Right? Where if you watch the news, you're like, are these leaders really serving us? Are these leaders eating us? Amen? And so that's what's going on uh, in Judah at this time. The civil leaders are consuming the people, not serving the people. And there are false prophets. Right? They're, they're mis they are denying their call and actually um, being false prophets to the people. So corruption, false rituals, um, the consumption of the people. And Micah is speaking into this and saying, you're gonna he's predicting destruction. But then there's a turn. And the turn is, but there will be a future hope for God's people. And that's in chapters 4 through 5. Right? God's kingdom is coming, and he's going to restore um, the remnant. And he's going to restore Zion. And actually, he's going to bring, uh, bring a new leader, a leader from Bethlehem, right? a leader from the ancient days whose roots go back. And back, and here's the Aquaman analogy again. Right? It's like the forgotten queen, the forgotten half-breed child, right, of a surface dweller and a queen, and, and the queen of Atlantis. Here is someone from the ancient times, the ancient royal line, and he's going to come back and deliver the people. But I think that. With all the military language 
and kind of the power of the Assyrians, the shadow of the Assyrians, kind of oppressing the kingdom, being oppressive against the nations, um, that the people were probably expecting, right, a powerful king, a military king, one who wielded a sword and would destroy all the armies of the Assyrians. A powerful, glorious King Saul, head and shoulders above the rest, right? Knight in shining armor to come and deliver them. But if you look at chapter or verse four of chapter five, what does it say about this king, this deliverer? He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. He will be our peace. You know, we just came out of Ephesians, right? And that echoes, Ephesians 2 echoes that, right? Christ is our peace. Right? That Christ, because of his sacrifice, uh, because of his death, is creating a new humanity, right? And reconciling people to God, to one another. And Christ is our peace that'll break down the barriers of hostility. So we have this strong shepherd, right? It's a past, you know, shepherd and pastor come from the same root, right? This image of one who is gentle and caring and compassionate, one who restores people, wipes the tears up from people's eyes, and says, I'm gonna lead you beside still waters. I'm gonna lay you down in green pastures, and you will live securely again. You will live securely again, for I will be your peace. In other parts, in Micah, it talks about, and the soldiers, right, and the military people will lay down their swords and exchange them for plowshares, right? Images of military weapons being laid down and agricultural tools being taken up as a sign of this renewal, as a sign of uh, the promise of security, the promise of abundance, the promise of thriving in the land rather than war, right? So even Micah in his uh, speaking the truth and prophesying, it's not a prophecy of this violent, you know, powerful, overpowering military might, but it's this image of peace and security, right? And living securely on the land, he will be our peace, our unexpected savior. Now, a lot of times when people talk about uh, kind of the prophecies of Micah, for instance, we <coughs> preachers will immediately say, and this is a foretelling of Jesus, right? You'll go, it's a straight prediction of Jesus, right? He's coming from Bethlehem, right, in the line of David. And that may be true. We, we can get there. But I think in Scripture, we also have to realize that there's a kind of a telescoping nature, does that make sense? Like, 
It's happening then. It's happening there in 8th century BC. Right? The land is in tumult. Right? There's a lot of struggles. And there's a lot of oppressive shadows coming in. And threats to the kingdom. Right? Threats to people's security. Threats to people's identity as a people. And because of these threats, people are going, turning left and right. Who will save us? Who will save us? What will save me? What will give me security? And we can understand this today, right? In the midst of threats to our lives, whether that's economic hardship, whether that's the fear of other or the fear of foreigners coming in and taking over or taking our jobs or whatever, it's the threat of health, right? Sickness, disease. We all experience a threat to security, a threat to identity. And the question is, who will deliver us? Who is our hero? To whom will we turn to give us security? Right? Are you with me, church? When I was, uh, I've mentioned this before, but in elementary, my elementary years were spent in Texas from first through sixth grade, around the suburbs of Dallas, Texas. And around Texas, you know, in the south, you do some bass fishing, you do some fishing, right? And uh, there's a lot of lakes, there's a lot of rivers, big old lakes. And we used to go fishing. Um, and I don't know, remember where this was, but we used to go, my dad used to take me fishing um, at this dam. And it was like this huge dam, like, and the water was just really powerful. But along the sides of the dam is just like concrete slopes, right? Asphalt slopes. And fishermen would just sit, sit on the slopes and cast it into the, like at the foot of the dam, just rough waters and fish. Um, and uh, there's a lot of Korean fishermen late at, and it'd be at night and they'd have these lights, like spotlight shining down. And stuff, but the water was like treacherous and rough, just roaring and raging. Um, if you fell in, it wouldn't be good. And I remember, you know, kind of being nervous, but my dad seemed to know what he was doing. And we'd go down these slopes. And back then, you know, we didn't care about safety as much, right? We, you know, we used to ride in the back of pickup trucks, right? Kids would, and we'd just drive around. Like, what if you were in an accident? You just fly out of the back of the truck. Right? No one cared. No one wore seatbelts. We were out till 10 p.m. at night, you know, as kids. Um, there wasn't that kind of sense. And so we were just on the side of, you know, this big dam with rushing water fishing. And I was just a little kid and I was in slippers. And um, so we're fishing. And, you know, the people around to me as a kid, they're kind of intimidating. Don't know who they are. It's kind of, you know, they're smoking cigarettes and like drinking and like fishing. And my dad was like trying to talk about Jesus to them and stuff like that. But we were fishing at the same time, and I wasn't paying attention, and I kind of tripped over my feet, and I started sliding and tumbling down the steep embankment. 
And I was just headed straight towards the, just the rough river dam water. And sliding, I was like, ah, dam, dam, tumbling, tumbling, tumbling. And I thought, literally, I thought I was going to die. Right? And then this hand just grabs the scruff of my, the back of my shirt and just pulls me up. And it's just this random ajushi, right? This old, old Korean guy, you know. And he saved my life. He saved my life. And I was just crying like that. It's like, thank you, thank you. And then, like, later he spanked me. <laughs> like, <laughs> what are you doing? Stop paying attention. I'm like, wait a second. What are you doing bringing me here? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Whose fault is this? Uh, later on, I realized that. Um, but the unexpected savior, right? The person that you would least expect um, in that moment to come and grab you. That, that is the Messiah. In some of our liturgy and some of our passages that we've read and some of the other passages you'll read or that's commonly read during Advent, Christmas time, we'll read them tomorrow, the Christmas Eve service, are stories of Jesus and kind of this unexpected Savior of the world, this unexpected, unorthodox right, birth of a child. And... Jesus' birth is actually amidst a lot of threats, right? There are a lot of things that had to happen for even Jesus to be born because it wasn't like his parents were of privilege or of wealth or from powerful families, right? A lot of things had to happen. Joseph could have divorced, you know, Mary, right? He could have left her, left her alone. And he didn't. Right? King Herod, hearing of the Messiah, reports of the Messiah, the foretold Messiah, feeling threatened by this birth of this Messiah, actually sent people out. And this is the part we don't preach on that much at Christmas because it's not a very happy story. But if you think about it, it is a threat. It's an atrocity that he went around and killed little babies in their homes. But that's part of the Christmas story, right? That how, you know, it's kind of hard to kind of deal with like how many infants and children died that night because Jesus was born. Ooh, that's a hard teaching. How do we talk about that? But the point of this is that there were a lot of threats, right? And the and Jesus' family had to, in a dream, were told to go to Egypt, right? And if you remember, you know, Egypt was a place that traditionally in Scripture the people of Israel were flying out of, right? Were moving away from, from slavery, Exodus out. And the family of Jesus actually goes back into Egypt, right? As a refugee family, right? Immigrants and refugees escaping 
the threat of government persecution. And this is Jesus. This is Jesus' family. This is Jesus' story. In Matthew, when you read the genealogy of Jesus, right, it's not the who's who of the Bible, right, or the who's who of like Jewish Hebrew lineage. It's all kinds of crazy people. And it's, sure, David is a part of that, but so is, you know, Tamar, you know, Rahab, a list of people um, that are quintessential, like, Oh, these are quintessential Jewish people who would be, you know, the ancestors of a king, a hero for our people. This is like, you know, shady people, unclean people, Gentiles, <clears throat> people who lived, you know, questionable lives, but they were all a part of this line that was fragile. If you if you look at the story, it's a fragile story. Anything could go wrong. Anything can happen. Persecution is happening. And yet, deliverance, right? And yet Christ is born in a humble place, in a place least expected, right? Nothing heroic. I like to say he wasn't trending. Jesus wasn't trending when he was born. There is no hashtag a hero is born. Right? It was like unknown, dirty, humble, random guests coming and bringing random gifts. Like, what? Shepherds? Magi from the East? Probably Iran? Today's Iran? Like, what was that all about? Where did they come from? Why? But in that moment, on that day, and what we are worshiping and celebrating and anticipating and preparing our hearts for, the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, was the salvation for the world, the life of the world, and new life for each and every one of us. Right? I don't know about you, uh, but I've had dark nights of the soul. Right, desert periods. Right, a lot of us have had desert periods where, no matter what, prayer doesn't work, worshiping doesn't work. It seems like God is silent. Right, God is not answering. God is not speaking. Nothing is going right. All you know, lots of not the next shoe is dropping. Like all the shoes are dropping. They're like, what else can happen? God, have mercy on me. Deliver me. What is wrong with this world? Well, we may feel that collectively in our nation. Like, what is going on in our country? Can anything else fall apart? Right? Can our rulers, our leaders demonstrate any more incompetence and lack of character than that we're seeing right now? Can anything Worse happen to good people around us. Can the rich just demonstrate even more lack of care for their fellow human being than right now in this in the history of our world and country? How many more shoes can drop? How many of my friends can be hurting and in pain? 
how much more division right, can be seen around us, can, can happen around us. How many more wars and rumors of wars? How many more sirens will go by <laughs> our church as I'm preaching? Right? There is pain. There is destruction. There are threats all around. And in our own personal lives, our journeys, we go through desert periods. Our souls are threatened. Our faith is questioned. We go through those periods, and I've been through those periods. Like, really, is there a God? Because there's nothing. There's nothing. And the people of Israel were experiencing these things too. Because when you're disconnected from the favor of God or from the love, loving arms of God, it feels like hell, right? Because you're disconnected from the one who knows you and loves you deeply. And we know that when, when Christ was born, there was over 400 years of silence from Malachi's prophecy, the last prophet in the Bible, and kind of utter silence. And then, and then, boom, this fulfillment. Talk about waiting. Right? And I want to be careful, and I struggle this, with this in scripture. Things like Micah, three cycles of, you know, doom and then salvation. Like, so God brings destruction on his people and then he saves them. Is he this like puppeteer that's like, uh -huh -huh. or kind of attaching I don't want us to attach like when people suffer, it's because they're not being faithful or righteous. As I said, we can read these things and say, oh, they were they had a lot of idolatries, they were rebelling against God, and so God brought made them be oppressed. Because if you like translate that, it's not good, right? Then we say people who are oppressed, you know, obviously they're sinners and not being good people, mm -hmm. not following God. And that's not that's just a complexity of scripture that we have to wrestle through, right? And the more you read in Micah, the point is that uh, the rulers of Israel were being unjust, right? Justice is at the heart of God. And like when his people are not being just people, he's like, forget about it. <laughs> I'm not rolling with you guys right now, right? But there are many reasons why God would be silent in our lives, or we would go through desert periods. Or there's many reasons why we suffer, right? And it's not an equation like, you suffer because you sin. And I just wanted to put that out there first. Um, but I think those times, those desert periods for me, are uh, have been transitional, growthful times, right? Because what happens when you're thirsty and hungry and walking in a desert? Amen? Just, you can read it in scripture. Where are you, God? I should have been, I was better off in Egypt. Right? I was better off when I was a punk, single, like, Korean-American raging man who, like, just, you know, did everything for myself and get me and get mine. 
and I was a butthole and jerk to everyone around me, and I disrespected women in my life. It was better in Egypt, right? It was better over there rather than this desert, right? Because God's not here. I'm just going to turn to what feeds me. Are you with me, church? Like, what are the things when God isn't there? Where are we tempted to turn? You know? What are the places we cling to? What are the, the holes, the watering holes that we go to drink from? And it's actually crap! It's crap water mixed in. Buffaloes are pooing into the water thing, and there's like Ebola in the water. And we're just like, ah, yes! Anything but nothing. Anything but this nothing. But these times, these desert periods where we're waiting here for you, we're waiting for God with our hands lifted up, singing Alleluia. And we're waiting and waiting, right? Our periods of soul growth, opportunities for character growth, opportunities to strengthen our faith, right? Opportunities where our praise becomes more intense. Our prayers become more fervent, right? Our love for community and love of neighbor becomes more needed and more regular, right? We do the things that the people of God do. We do the, we, we enact the worship, the worship, the things that worshiping people do. We praise, we pray, we read scripture, we receive, and we say, God, 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 please, I'm waiting. I need you. Where are you? I need you. And in that place, our hearts stretch. We know this to be true as human bodies, right? Any of you who are in sports, no pain, no gain, right? If you want to be a marathon runner, is it easy? There are going to be these times where you're running. I've tried to be a runner many times in my life, like a jogger. And you know when you first start jogging after not jogging for a while, uh, like everything hurts. You get that burn, and like your shoes aren't right, so your feet are like cramping up and getting hurt in the first five minutes. And every time I've tried to be a long-distance runner, or run to stay in shape. It's been like I've quit in the first five minutes. I'm like, oh, I'm cramping. Oh, I'm not ready. I, I just didn't stretch enough. Oh, and I go back home, and Janice is like, why are you back so soon? I'm like, oh, I, I can't just run. I need a sport to compete. I need like an objective, right? But you have to get over those humps. And like, people actually love running. You know, have you talked to runners? They're like, if they miss a time of running, they're like, my life feels empty, right? I feel antsy. I need to go and run 10 miles today. It's like they love running. It gives them a high because they've already passed those initial bumps and they've got to a place here where it's actually enjoyable and it's a regular discipline and a thing. And their, their capacity has been increased to the point where like, yeah, I need it. I want it. And that's what waiting does for us, right? 
That's what being a people on a journey and recognizing that journey and putting context, the context of our journey within the biblical narrative, the biblical context. That, oh, my life journey is like the journey of the people of God. Right? And when we put that, put our lives into context of the gospel message, then we are allowed to grow. Amen? Amen. Then Christmas has real meaning. Right? Christmas isn't just, oh dang, I gotta get my kids presents. Gosh, how annoying. You know? Can I just watch football? Two, we're waiting for the unexpected Savior. Amen. Let's pray.